Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality and every other sin. A, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexual, the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. You can have a seat. Last week, we, we looked at your body, God's temple, and we started in this text, but we started in verse 19. And so we got to go back, and uh, today we're going to just be sharing some principles for proper practice. Whenever you get involved in confronting sin, or you get involved in naming sin, as Paul does here in this text, speaking of sexual immorality, there's always a chance that legalism could raise its ugly head and all of a sudden, you make a blanket statement about a certain sin or about a certain thing that maybe Scripture isn't always so clear on. And so we don't want to, uh, we want to be careful not to do that. And when you approach Scripture that way, as we saw last week, a lot of times um, it can become just a rule book. It's a bunch of rules that you follow. You just check them off as you go through them. And we need to make sure that, like last week, we, we spoke of, you know, there's so many people within the body of Christ that have not really done their due diligence, as far as Christ is concerned, in reaching out and having friends who may not know Christ. They limit themselves just to the body of Christ, and they think somehow it's sinful to have a friend who is a non-believer. And that could be nothing further from the truth. And last week, we looked at four reasons why Christians should be intentional about having friends that do not know Christ. The four things were they're sick in need of hope. They, they keep you real. They are not shy about their struggles, and they ask great questions. And the last thing was because Christ had unbelieving friends. And we went on and we began to share a little bit about how important it is to realize that we were left here for a purpose. We weren't just left here to, to come to church every Sunday and that's it. We're left here to be the salt, to be the light. And we compared the uh, temple, because we spoke of chapter or verse 19 where it says, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and we wanted to understand what the temple was. And we found out several things. And we made five comparisons between your body and the original temple of God. First of all, we said it was a place of dedication. 
That's what the temple was. And so your body should be a place of dedication. Secondly, we said it was a place of devotion. People that went to the temple, they were devoted to worship God. Our body should be a place of devotion. The temple, physical temple, was a place of duty. Our physical body should be a place of duty, that we worship the Lord with the use of our, our bodies. We use them for his glory. And then fourthly, we noticed that the, the, the temple was a place of death. Whenever you went to the temple, you always saw death because that's what was happening. There was people sacrificing animals for the sins of the people, the priest was. And, and so you had all this death going on in blood, and, and, and it, it indicates that in our physical bodies, we need to have, it needs to be a, a sign of death to other people. And what do I mean by that? I meant that, you know what, we're instructed to be dead to the world and alive to Christ. So when people look at our physical bodies and our lives here on earth, they should notice that, wow, you're, you don't seem very alive to the things of the world, but you're, you're alive to other things. Okay, um, we're to be dead to the things of the world. And then the last thing is a place of display. Men saw the temple. When they saw it, they were reminded of God. And we ask the question, when, when people see you, are they reminded of Christ because of your testimony, because of your walk? Well, re- remember that Paul was writing to the, the Corinthians here to a very immature church. They had a lot of issues going on. And he reminds them that, you know what, just like little children, he was trying to correct them on some issues here. And they began to take his correction and turn it into rules and regulations and legalism. And thinking, well, as long as I don't do this, you know, he didn't mention that sin, so I could do that. And they were playing a game. And we do that today, to some extent. Uh, But kids need rules. Kids want rules. They want to be told what to do. And so what Paul does here throughout the book of Corinthians, and next week we'll, we'll actually go through the text this morning, but today we're going to be jumping through some of the text and then a little bit further. I want to share with you basically six powerful principles for practicing your Christianity. Six powerful principles for practicing your Christianity. These aren't rules. These are lessons for every Christian that Paul lays down throughout the book of Corinthians. Because when Paul would address their sin, they tended to just, okay, well, we can't do this, and they'd make it a rule. And Paul's like, no, it's a principle. If you just give your kids a bunch of rules and they turn 18 and they're out of the house and they don't have any principles to live by, you're in big trouble. They're in big trouble. They're not going to function properly in life. Because when the rules aren't there, what's going to happen? They're going to do whatever they want because there's no underlying principle for their practice. So the first principle we see here in verse, we'll start in our text, in chapter 6, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. Paul says this, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. This is the principle of expediency. There's two questions here that Paul kind of raises to help us decide whether something is right or wrong. The first one is, is it lawful? Is it lawful? 
Is there any word from God concerning that matter? Whatever it might be. List anything in your mind. See, when God speaks on an issue, we have to realize that it, that settles it. Would you agree? We believe, as Dave read this morning in, in 2 Timothy 3.16, that God's word is inspired. And if God takes the time to explain to us certain things that we should flee from or that we shouldn't have anything to do with or there's certain practices that we should not be involved in, we can't say, well, I guess that's a gray. It's not a gray area. It's not a gray area. When God speaks on an issue, that settles it. And there are some very clear moral absolutes. You know, you shouldn't steal. I don't think any of us would say, well, I guess it's okay sometimes. No. You shouldn't lie. You shouldn't commit adultery. I mean, go right through the Ten Commandments. I mean, if you want a list, there's a list. See, but we have to stop and we have to realize that sometimes people even look at things where God has spoken and they say, well... I mean, one is an example this morning, church, the area of church discipline. I mean, if you're visiting here this morning, there's not a lot of churches that practice church discipline. Now, that's a process that we're in, but it's important to understand that the Bible is very clear on that. You know, the Bible doesn't stutter when it comes to the aspect of the church and, and the authority and, and all that's involved there. And how we should be living lives that are honoring to Christ. See, there are some things there that God speaks very clearly about. But our, our society today is what? It's, it's a relativistic society. Well, as long as, you know, it's okay if you're homosexual, as long as you're not hurting anybody. And when you say no, that's not what God's word says. God's word calls it a sin. Just like he calls adultery a sin. Well, you know, you're not in my marriage. You don't know my wife, you know. It doesn't matter. See, all that, all the excuses do not matter when God speaks clearly on a certain issue. And we need to be reminded of that. So, first of all, is it lawful? Secondly, is it expedient? Does it bring you toward your destination, in other words? See, every decision, every activity either moves us closer to Christ or further away from Christ in our lives. Everything. So the next time when you have a question mark in your mind, you're about ready to partake of a certain activity, just ask yourself the question, Does this, is this going to bring me closer to Jesus or not? Is it lawful? Is it expedient? If it doesn't bring you closer to Christ, it's probably wrong, more than likely. We should all have goals, should we not, in life? I mean, that's clear. Paul had goals. He said in Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 to 15, he says, Brother, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and striving forward to what lies ahead. What? He had a goal. What's his goal? I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Verse 15, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. What was Paul saying? There's nothing wrong with having goals. There's nothing wrong with going down a certain path. But 
does that goal bring you closer to where you need to be in Christ? Or does it bring you further away? That's what we mean by is it expedient? I want you to understand this this morning, and this flies to the opposite of legalism. You know, in Christ, you can do anything that you please, and it will not make you unsaved. You say, well, I don't know if I tell people that, but it's true. Now, we're not saying you would do that because we want to live lives that are honoring to Christ. But knowing that, I want you to understand this next point. Not everything that you can do, even though you could do whatever you want, everything you can do may not help you grow as a Christian. And if it doesn't help you grow as a Christian, if it doesn't bring you closer to that destination of being more like Christ, guess what? It's wrong. It's wrong. It doesn't matter what it is. You can fill in the blank. I mean, God has a plan for us. Ephesians 4, 13. He says, Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's his goal for us. He, he wants us to be full in Christ. He wants us to be mature in Christ. You're not going to do that if you're out there playing with things that God has spoken on or if you're playing with things that are not doing anything for you spiritually to make you more like Christ. Secondly, not just the principle of expediency, but also the principle of enslavement. We see this in chapter 6, verse 12 as well. He says, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be, what, dominated by anything, he says. Some translations say brought under the power. It means to be enslaved to something. That's what sin is. Sin is enslaving. It has an enslaving power. And you know what? We were all slaves at one time, were we not? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Let me read it for you. It says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of of the body and the mind, and were by nature, listen to this, children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. That's what Paul says. See, we were all enslaved to sin. Romans 6.16 points that out. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? So there's not a lot of gray area there. It's it's one or the other. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 tells us very clearly, but God is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Listen to this. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, God loved us. And he made us alive together with Christ, he says. By grace you have been saved. Amen? That's a good place to say amen. Verse 6, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that... 
in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ. Jesus, verse 8, for by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works. It's not a result of you keeping a bunch of rules. It's a, it's a gift of God so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in them. See, the Bible is very, very clear that either you're enslaved to sin or really you're enslaved to Christ. You're a servant of, the, of Christ. In Romans chapter 6, verse 14 Uh, Paul writes, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under what? Under grace. See, for the first time as believers, now we have the opportunity to say no to sin. I'm not saying we always do that, (laughs) do we? That would make us perfect. We don't. Sometimes we fall. It's too enticing, too much pressure, whatever. But he says, it doesn't have to have dominion over you. Christ is in your life now. The Spirit will give you the power to overcome. And you're not under the law, you're under grace. See, anything outside of Jesus that controls our life, anything outside of the Holy Spirit that controls our life, guess what? It's sin. It's sin. There's only two forces in the world. Matthew 12, 30 says, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Jesus was very clear. There's no gray area. You can't have one toe in and one toe out. This doesn't work that way. I mean, in a way, we should be thankful. It makes things a lot easier. I mean, can you imagine having to go back and forth? Well, am I saved? Am I not? No, either you, you have put your faith and trust in Christ, and he has forgiven you, and he has transformed your life. And you have a desire now to live for him. Or you don't. It's that simple. See, the lost man, the person who is unregenerate, the person who has not been touched by God's grace, they think they're in control. But guess what? They're not. They're not in control. I mean, sure, he's free to choose his own actions. But guess what? Not the consequences of those actions. As a matter of fact, the Bible describes him as a slave to the will of the devil. If you've not yet placed your faith, your trust in Christ yet, sinner, friend, give your heart to Christ. Give your heart to Jesus. He will set you free. That's what John eight thirty six says. If the Son sets you free, guess what? You will be free indeed, he says. There's no question mark about it. And for those of us who have come to Christ, we know what it means to be enslaved to sin and feel that sense of remorse and that burden that you carry around daily. And you try to fix it by coming to church or doing this or doing that or helping some homeless people try to make you feel better. It doesn't work. It never sets you free. Your own works. The only thing that can set you free is the Son. But when you're free by the Son, you are free indeed. See, as believers, we need to make sure that we're constantly looking at our own lives. We're searching our own hearts, making sure that no habit, attitude, activity, or pursuit has enslaved us. If you're struggling with some besetting sin in your life, believer, Jesus can set you free today. 
You just trust him. That's the principle of enslavement. Now jump ahead a couple chapters. Chapter 8. Chapter 8, 1 Corinthians. Because Paul shares these, cha- these, these principles throughout the book of Corinthians. We'll come back to our text next week and finish going through that in an ex- expositional manner. But the third principle here I want to point out to you that Paul brings up in 1 Corinthians 8, 8 to 13 is the principle of example. The principle of example. Let me just read it for us. He says, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone else sees you, uh, sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, Paul says, I will never eat meat again, lest I make my brother stumble. The principle of example. Now remember, this this is back in the time when Paul lived. Pretty much Corinth was a pagan society. And many who lived in Corinth, as we know, practiced idol worship. They would sacrifice a sheep or a goat to their god, and then they'd sell the meat to the butcher at the meat market. He, in turn, would make the meat available to the public at a discounted price because it's a you know, sacrificial thing here going on. It was sacrificed to idols. It was perfectly good meat. There was nothing wrong with it. The price was right. So watching their dollars and being some, you know, frugal people, some of the Christians would buy this meat and eat it, thinking, well, there's nothing wrong with it. It's good meat. Who cares if it was sacrificed to an idol? Well, other Christians within the community felt that God's people shouldn't eat this meat because it was offered to devils or offered to whatever, some idol. And those opposing camps began to argue bitterly about this issue. And they turned to Paul for help because it became an issue in the church even. And through the inspiration of the Lord, Paul gave them this principle of example. He didn't give them an ironclad rule, but rather he gave them a principle. He said that meat would not make you better, neither would it make you worse. In other words, that has nothing to do with the meat. It's irrelevant. But his advice was this, Don't do anything that would be a stumbling block to another believer. The issue is not whether it will hurt you. The question is, could it hurt my brother? Not even will it. Could it? Is there a possibility? Because throughout the scriptures, in the church, we're we're called to put ourselves first, right? No. (laughs) We're called to put what? others first. We're always called to put others first. And see, each side thought they were doing the right thing, and they somehow possessed greater insight into this, whether we should eat this meat that was sacrificed to idols or not, this issue. But Paul reminds them that brotherly love must be the main 
objective. And that's what he, he says in verse 1 of, 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 of 1 Corinthians 8. He says, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge, and knowledge puffs up, but love, what? Builds up, he says. Love builds up. So when it comes to this principle of example and living a life before other believers in the world even, you have to stop and you have to ask yourself, is what I'm doing possibly causing somebody else to stumble? In the body of Christ. And if it is, I shouldn't do it. At least around them, I shouldn't do it. You know, to be very practical, one of the issues in, in Christianity today is the aspect of drinking alcohol. Okay, people have on both sides on this. Some people go out and have a beer, they don't have a problem with that. They don't get drunk, it's just another beverage for them. They're not enslaved to it, it's not an issue. They, you know, they say, well, Jesus and his disciples drank wine. Well, I guarantee you it wasn't the kind of wine we have today. They'd always be drunk because they were always drinking wine. It was a watered-down wine. It wasn't this fermented you know, alcoholic juice they have today. We call it wine. You know, it, was, it was just a beverage that they drank other than water because a lot of times you couldn't drink the water. So, but in the church today, there's this divisive thing about alcohol. And you just have to be willing to say, you know what? You have to consider other brothers before yourself. You know, if you're in your home and you don't have any issue with alcohol and you're, you know, not going to influence anyone for the ill and you want to have a beer, I mean, I can't point to a scripture that would forbid it. I, I wouldn't say it's a good idea, but, but I can't point to a scripture. On the other hand, if you know you have Thanksgiving dinner and you invite the whole church over, and on every table there's three bottles of wine and a couple beers, that's probably not a good idea. Because you don't know who, who's, who's sitting at your table. You may have an alcoholic you invited, and you don't even know they're an alcoholic. And here you are, thinking you're being a great host and offering alcohol in your home, and you're, you're literally tempting this brother or sister in Christ without even knowing about it. See, so you have to be careful. You have to be willing to put others before yourself. And that's just a very practical, you know, that's not a treatise on whether you should drink alcohol or, you know, don't go away from here saying, oh, the pastor says I can have a beer, you know, it's not a problem. I'm not saying that. I'm just using it as an example, Okay. And, and I think it's, it's very important that we, we understand that. I mean, I come from a family of alcoholics, so, I, you know, I try to steer clear as much as I can from that stuff because it doesn't do anything for me. And if it did anything, it would probably not be good. <laughs> so I've experienced it enough to know that, okay? So that's the principle of example. Well, quickly here, the next one, the fourth one, is the principle of edification, the pr- principle of edification. Look at chapter 10, verse 23. Now remember, these aren't rules. These are just principles that you can live your life by so that you're not stepping on a a brother or sister and causing people to stumble all over the place. It says there in verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 10, notice he says, all things are lawful. He uses this term a lot. All things are lawful, but not all things are what? Helpful. 
All things are lawful, but not all things build up, he says, or edify is the word. See, everything you do, everything you say, everything you hear is either building you up in your Christian faith or it's tearing you down. It's one or the other. Every conversation, every relationship, every activity must be judged by this same principle. Does this make me stronger in the Lord? Or does it weaken my walk with Jesus? You know, as a youth pastor, I used to deal with teenagers all the time. And inevitably, it was the girls that would come into my office and they would ask me the question, well, I I have this boyfriend. I just, you know, okay, is he a Christian? Well, yeah, I think so. Well, what do you mean? Well, you know, he's... Catholic, he does. He goes to church at Christmas time, but I think he's a Christian. Well, no, I don't think he is. You know, so let's let's you know let's go back to the scriptures here. And you know, I get it. All right, I mean, you know, they think they're in love, the whole thing. But the bottom line, you have to stop and you have to say, okay, is this going to help you? Does God speak on this? Well, matter of fact, God does speak on this. God says that bad company what corrupts good morals. So the whole evangelistic dating thing as a youth pastor went out the window a long time ago because I saw it collapse in oh so many ways. Because generally what happens is the believer starts off with good intentions and eventually the unbeliever wears them down. And they end up crossing that line of no return. And then before they know it, they find themselves in a relationship that's unequally yoked and they have misery for years to come. So you have to stop and you have to say, all right, is this thing lawful? Is this going to build me up? Does this make me stronger in the Lord? All of life should be lived in such a way that it does nothing but build up the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we're not perfect in that, clearly, but that should be the goal. Do the things you're doing make you stronger for him? Frankly, if not, they need to go. I don't care what it is. Fifthly, the principle of exaltation. The principle of exaltation. You see that just down at the end there in verse 31. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or whether you drink, and look at what he says. He goes, well, whatever you do. (laughs) Because he knew the Corinthians would say, well, he didn't mention this. He didn't mention, you know, whatever, blah, blah. No, he said, whatever you do, because he knew their hearts. He says, do all for the glory of God. Everything? I'm supposed to do everything for the glory of God as a Christian? Yes. That's the standard. Everything we do in life either honors or dishonors God. It's bottom line. Every conversation, every habit, every relationship, every business deal, every vacation, Every book we read, every film we watch, every music tune we listen to, every website we visit is either going to honor or dishonor God. You know, we had the little bracelets when I was a youth pastor, WWJD, what would Jesus do? We all thought that was so cool. What a great idea. And the more I thought about it, I thought, what a ridiculous scam that was. I mean, the kids saw right through that. I remember one youth pastor said this. I think we ought to rename it. Not what would Jesus do, 
but what would I do if Jesus was with me? <laughs> See, that drove it home to teenagers because then they realized, oh, wait a minute. Because guess what? He is with you. He's with all of us who know Christ. Hebrews 13.5 says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, this is the Lord, I will what? Never leave you nor forsake you. So just because you visit that site that doesn't honor the Lord, don't you think Jesus isn't sitting right there with you? Because he is. It's so funny when we think of our faith in that way. It has a tendency to change. I've shared this story before, but uh, Pastor Holland, who used to be down at, at MacArthur's church when he was a youth pastor, he had this couple come in, and he was mentoring them and kind of getting them ready for marriage. And they came in, and they were just distraught. And, and they said, you know, we, we made a mistake in our relationship. Physically, we crossed the line. And he could just tell by their demeanor something had happened. And so he talked to him, and he goes, I know. They go, what? He goes, I know. I, I know what happened. And I said, well, how do you know? Well, someone saw you. What? No, no way. You know, they became more unglued. And yeah, someone saw you. What do you mean someone's? There's no way somebody goes. Yeah, someone saw you. And finally they became so distraught after their who, who, who. God saw you. And what he said, it was a sigh of relief. Oh, we thought you meant someone. Someone really saw us. See, they found comfort in the fact that God saw them and nobody else. See, we need to be reminded, brothers and sisters, that God is watching us. That everything that we do in life reflects back on God. Philippians 1.27, Paul writes this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, so that whether I come and see you, or whether I don't, whether I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. See, does your life exalt God in the eyes of the world when everybody's watching? More importantly, does it exalt God when nobody's watching? But be assured that God is watching. And the last principle here, the principle of evangelism. Look at verse 32, chapter 10, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 32 33, he says, Give no offense to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everything. This doesn't mean he was a people pleaser. That's something else. He says, Just as I try to please everyone, everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. What was Paul's desire, desire here? He didn't want to turn anyone off to the gospel by his lifestyle. He didn't want someone to point their finger at him and say, oh, you're a Christian, yeah, right. I'll never trust in your God. He strove to be inoffensive. He strove to be an open book with his walk before the Lord. Count me, people are watching you. 
people that you probably don't even realize are watching you, your neighbors, your, your workers, your co-workers, your children, parents. <laughs> does your life move men toward God or does your life move men away from him? Because lifestyle does matter. It really does. What you do speaks so loud that I cannot hear what you are saying. You ever hear that? <laughs> sure you did. See, we should strive to reach everyone we come into contact with with the gospel of Christ. And we will be proven to be ineffective in that venture as long as our walk and our talk do not agree. People will look at you as a hypocrite. Are you a living witness for Christ? 2 Corinthians 3 3, 3.2 says, You yourselves are our letter of recommendation. This is Paul. Speaking of the people to whom he's written this, this letter to in Corinth, he says, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and ready by all, and read by all. That's, that's what we are. We're letters from God to a lost and dying world. Are we speaking to them grace and forgiveness and love? Or are we speaking to them judgment? What are our lives speaking to those people. If you take those six principles and you live by them, or you, at least you strive to live by them, you're going to be a blessing to the Lord in his work here in this world. And one day you'll stand before him and you'll hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. I mean, that's what I want to hear. I don't know about you, but I want to hear those words from the, from the lips of my Lord. And I think when we do things in this regard to the issues of life, we can make that hope a reality. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray that as we look at these principles, Lord, that we would be willing to put them into practice and not make our Christian lives a bunch of rules and do this and don't do that, but, but Lord, principles to live by. And Father, they just constrain us to live lives that are in accordance with the example that your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, has laid down for us. And Lord, I know we're not perfect. None of us are. But Lord, we, we can all choose to make a little more effort to grow more like Christ in our daily dealings with people. And Lord, that you would increase our compassion, our desire to see men and women and children come to Christ. Lord, we're surrounded with lost people every day of the week. And yet so many times we don't even say a word. What a shame that is. We think that somehow that's politically correct to talk about our faith in the workplace or in the marketplace. Well, it's not. It's something that we're directed to do in a gracious, loving way to give the truth of the gospel out to those who have yet to believe. Father, help us to have the faith to believe that as we are obedient in that task, that you will bless us You will bless us, and we will see many souls come to Christ. Father, we pray for those who are gathered here in this room. If there's anyone here who's yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ, I pray that they would realize it's never too late. You may have run steps, many steps from God, but it only takes one step to return. I pray that you would Turn your heart to him. Ask him for forgiveness for your sin.
Just cry out to him, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I pray that you would transform my life, make me the person that you desire me to be. I want to turn from my sin to the Savior. That's a prayer that he will answer when it's prayed from a sincere heart. And we just pray that you would bless our day, bless our time of fellowship across the way. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. All God's people said, amen.